Um, don't really have many announcements, but um, one thing that I wanted to um, let you guys know is we are sort of in the process of figuring out what uh, children's ministry is going to look like in the near future. So um, I see a lot of you guys are, hallelujah. Um, yeah, so um, we're just kind of working through what that's going to look like. In the next couple of weeks, we'll um, let you guys know what's happening and, um, and go from there. It's kind of new, new ground for all of us here. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. You guys like this, by the way? Isn't this awesome? I forgot to charge my iPad, so I'm using Denise's pretty pink one today. And her pretty pink one keeps freezing up on me all the time, too. Okay. Come on, come on. There we go. That's better. Heavenly Father, um, we come before you this morning. And Lord, we just ask that you would, that you would meet us here today. Lord, as we look at, look at the lives of, of your people in the early church, Lord, and, and how they dealt with opposition and, and persecution, Lord, we pray that you would just, just give us wisdom and direction and guidance as to how you would have us live our lives. We pray that in your name, Jesus. So the last, I don't know, three weeks or so, at least three or four weeks, we've been looking at this, this section in Acts chapter 3 and 4 surrounding the, the man who was crippled. And remember, um, Peter and, and John were approaching the temple and, and they made eye contact. And remember, the guy thought he was going to receive something and Peter says, silver and gold have I none. What I have I give unto thee, arise and walk. And remember, Peter takes him by the hand and pulls him to his feet. And, and immediately the man was healed. And in the next scene, we find the man leaping and, and praising the Lord. And remember, the, the people were astonished by all that was going on. And they began to gather around. And, and Peter, remember, he said, what are you guys looking at me for? As, as though it was my own godliness that healed this man. And remember, he, he preached that message, and, and, and we saw thousands of people come to faith. And remember, we saw last week, it said, and the religious leaders were greatly annoyed, right? They, they were upset by what was going on. And um, it, it wasn't so much the miracle that upset them, but it was, it was Jesus that upset them. Right? And so we saw Peter and John get arrested for proclaiming the name of Jesus. And, and I think that's important to note, right? That nobody is against good works. Nobody's against healing, right? Atheists don't have a problem with people being made whole or being made well. Everybody wants to see sick, pe <coughs> sick people made well, right? Nobody says, you know... I wish we had a few more sick people around. Right? Nobody says, I wish there were a couple more lepers here. Right? We, everybody is for, for healing. But it's the name in which they healed that upset the religious leaders. 
It was the name of Jesus. It was Jesus that the people were against. Right? Jesus was the problem that the priests had, that the scribes had, that the Pharisees had. They didn't have a problem with Peter and John healing. They had a problem with them healing in the name of the resurrected Christ. And so remember, they threatened the disciples. They said, listen, we don't want you guys to preach the name of Jesus anymore. And remember in verse 19, Peter basically says this. He says, well, what should we do then? Should we obey you or should we obey God? Because we can't do both in this situation. And then Peter adds that and he says, we can't stop telling people the things that we have seen and heard. And that kind of brings us up to where we are today. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. And then they were released. They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So Peter and John, they get out of jail the next morning. They've been sternly warned not to continue preaching the name of Jesus. And so they run home and hide under their covers. No, it's not what happened at all, right? What's it say they do? They go back to the other believers. They're released, and they go straight to church. They go right back to their faith community. And, and I think that that's a cool principle. <clears throat> and it reminds me a little bit of, of Daniel. Remember in Daniel chapter 6? Remember Daniel, he's been promoted to sort of the head of the Magi. He's in charge of all the wise men there in Persia. And a lot of the other wise men, they're jealous. And they don't like Daniel. And they're talking about him. They say, look, we don't like him. We'd like to get rid of him. But he's a good guy. There's nothing really we can accuse him of. So remember, they conjure up this little plan. And they go to the king. And they say, listen, king, we, we think you're pretty wonderful. We think you're pretty great. In fact, here's what we want to do. We want to pass a law that says nobody's allowed to pray to anyone except to you, king, for the next 30 days. And the king says, you know, I am pretty wonderful. I think that's a good idea. And so he signs the law. And remember what Daniel does. He goes home and he continues to pray. You know, Daniel could have avoided the wrath of the authorities if he'd gone home and just not prayed for a month, right? Daniel could have stayed out of trouble if he would have gone home and just prayed quietly in his bathroom, right? Daniel could have gone home and just sat on the couch and prayed with his mouth closed, and everything would have been fine. But what does Daniel do? He goes home, and he throws open the windows, doesn't he? And he continues to pray like he always had. And, and, and I like that principle. I think that he didn't practice what Peter is saying with his words here, right? He said, well, look, we want to follow the law, but where man's law and God's law conflict, we're going to choose God's law over man's law. Right, so Peter and John, they're released and they go to church. And, and, and I like that. I think there's an important lesson for us there. Right, where, where
do you go when you're suffering? Where do you turn when, 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 when life gets hard? When, when, when difficulties come? Where do you go when you're celebrating? Where do you go when you're rejoicing? Who do you, who do you share life with? Who do, you, who do you fellowship with? And that's an important question because it makes a big difference in our lives. And of course, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have unbelieving friends, of course. I'm not saying that Christians should only hang out with other believers. But where's your fellowship at? Who do you connect with? Who do you draw your strength from? Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 33, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. But the companion of fools will suffer harm. And Paul is kind of playing on that a little, I think, when he writes to the church in Corinth. I remember the church in Corinth was, <coughs> was plagued with sin and corruption and worldliness. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And some of your other translations say something like, bad company corrupts good character. And, and what he's saying is this. If you spend all of your time with unbelievers, if you're spending all of your time with the world, you're naturally going to become like the world. It's just sort of the nature of things, isn't it? It's just the way things work. You become more and more like the people that you hang out with. And I think we've all experienced that. You know, you've, you've had friends growing up that you spent every day with, all summer with, or you worked with. And, you know, somebody asks a question, you both answer the same thing at the same time. You're just kind of, you're kind of in sync, right? You can kind of finish each other's thoughts. And, and married couples understand this too. You know, my, my wife, she, she always knows what I'm thinking. She always knows what I'm about to say. That we'll be in social situations and, and something will happen or somebody will do something. And she knows exactly what I'm about to do or say. And she'll give me the eye. Like, don't you say that. Don't, don't do it. Because she knows what my inclinations are. And that's kind of what we're talking about. We, we develop an intimacy with those that we spend a lot of time with. And as you continue to spend lots of time with people, you begin to share the same opinions, kind of the same way of thinking, the same worldview. And you even see, like, guys who spend lots of time together before long, they all start dressing the same even. Right? It's just kind of how, how things work. What's the point of all that? We as believers, as the church, of course, we need to be friends with unbelievers. We need to be loving. We need to be friendly. We need to be interacting with the world, interacting with the lost. We, of course, should have plenty of unbelieving friends. That's how we build bridges to share the gospel. But where do you run when trouble hits? Where do you run when hard times come? Where do you run when, when you've got good news to share? 
we see Peter and John here. Difficult times come, and they run back to church. They run back to other believers. They run back to their, to their, to their faith community, and they tell them the story of what happened. Verse 24, and when they, the church, heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Stop right there for a second. Peter and John, they, they give their report. They said, look, we went before the Sanhedrin. They arrested us. They threatened us. They told us we're not allowed to preach Jesus anymore. You know, and, and I think that they, they realized at this point that there was a storm beginning to brew, that there was opposition beginning to mount against the church. They realized that, that the tides were shifting and, and the attitudes of the people were beginning to shift against the church. And we're going to see in just a couple chapters, starting in Acts chapter 7 with, with the death of Stephen, that, that a, a season of of severe persecution starts against the church. And, and believers are, are gathered together and some are put to death and, and some, are, some are thrown in prison. There's this, there's this severe, severe persecution. But here, the believers gather together and, and Peter, he kind of gives them the breakdown of what happened and, and they see that Peter and John were released unharmed. And we see that this spontaneous prayer meeting breaks out. And I want to point out a couple things that we see in their prayer meeting. First, it says that all the believers lifted their voices together. They were of one accord. Now, there's obviously a lesson in unity there. But I want to point something out. In Greek, the implication here is not that they were all praying at once, at the same time. If you've ever gone to like a, you know, they call them oftentimes full gospel churches or, or Pentecostal churches. A lot of times those prayer meetings, when, when they get in a group to pray, they say, let's pray. And all of a sudden, everybody starts praying at once. You know, and they're all trying to pray louder than each other. And it's just, and, and it's not that there's anything wrong with that. It's not that that's an unbiblical way to pray, per se, but that's not what's going on here. The implication in the grammar is that one person was praying, and the others were in agreement, praying in agreement with that person. And they lifted up their voices together. Second, it's interesting that they, we see them praying audibly, right? They prayed out loud. And to be clear, the Lord hears our prayers whether we pray out loud or we pray silently. It's not an issue of God not being able to hear. But, you know, when we're in groups, we pray out loud, it, it encourages one another. You know, we, we build each other up in prayer. And I think sometimes personally, by yourself, it's a, it's a good idea to pray out loud. And here's why. You know, so often in my own life anyway, you know, I'll, I'll spend some time in the Word and I'll... If it's in the morning or in the evening, and, uh, and I'll go to spend some time in prayer, and I wake up 20 minutes later, or I, or I wake up the next morning, right? And I didn't really do a lot of battle and prayer there. But if you're praying out loud, it's a little easier to stay awake when you're praying. So just sort of a practical tip there. 
And third, we see they pray, O sovereign Lord. That, that phrase there, sovereign Lord, it's a different term for the Lord than we typically see in the Koine Greek. That word is despota, where we obviously get the English word despot. You know, a, a dictator, someone who has absolute power, someone who has total control. And, and this is a word that a, that a slave might use to refer to his master, right? And, and, and so what they're saying is, Lord, you are God. Lord, you alone are in control of all things. You're the one who, he says, made all creation. Peter says, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and, and everything in them and, and everything in between. You made it all and you are in control of all. And, and, and that's what sovereignty means when we talk about the sovereignty of God. We'll talk about that a little more in a few minutes. But the sovereignty of God, simply put, means this. God is absolutely in control of all things all the time. Every detail in the universe he is aware of and in control of. And I point that out for this reason. Sometimes I think we have a tendency to think of God as basically like we are. I mean, he's a better version of us, a little smarter and a little more powerful, but we kind of think of him in human terms like we are. And, you know, I, I, I don't think that we would articulate it that way. We wouldn't describe God that way, but practically we, we live that way, as if God's just basically like us. And that's not the case. Scripture is very clear that he's all-knowing, that he's all-powerful, and that he is absolutely in control of all things all the time. And that is a great comfort to me. Nothing that happens happens outside of the will of God. Nothing that happens happens outside of his knowledge and his control. And there's a whole other topic on, on the will of God and the perfect and the permissive will of God in regards to his sovereignty. And we're not going to talk about that this morning. But just know this, that he is always aware and always in control of all things. Verse 25, the sovereign Lord, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So there's a couple of interesting things we see here in these couple of verses. They're, they're quoting Psalm chapter 2. And, and so... Look at what Peter says. He says, the sovereign Lord spoke through our ancestor David. What do we learn about the apostles' view of the Old Testament from that? What do we learn about the apostles' view of Scripture? We see that their view of Scripture was the same as ours, right? They believed that the Bible was the inspired Word of God. They believed that the, that the words written in the Old Testament were the voice of God, they were the heart of God, spoken through the mouths and the pens of men. And Paul, of course, reiterates that same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
Well, in verse 16 he writes, For all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible is the heart of God communicated to the minds of men. And the early church, they recognized this. And they had a, a very high view of Scripture. They took Scripture literally. They accepted it as God's Word and the final authority in their lives. There are a lot of people today, and throughout history really, who really like to use Command C and Command V when it comes to Scripture, right? They like to cut and paste. They like to select the portions they like and disregard the portions that they don't like. You know, they, they, everybody likes the part where it says that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. Everybody likes the verses that talk about heaven and talk about we're going to have joy like, like, like torrents of living water. Everybody likes those parts, but they don't really like the parts about judgment and about the call to, to holiness and purity and integrity. They, they, they don't care for those parts. But here's the thing. The Bible, the Word of God, it's sort of a, it's an all or nothing deal. Right? We either believe it and accept it as a whole or we reject it completely. We either accept or reject God's authority in our lives. The second thing I want to note in this, and, and we've talked about this two or three times recently as we've been uh, going through this passage, but this, it kind of keeps coming up over and over again. These guys here, they began to quote Psalm 2 from memory. They knew the Word of God. They had spent time in the Word of God. They spent time meditating on the Word of God, time memorizing the Word of God. They had the Word of God hidden away in their hearts. And I think that's such an important lesson for us. We as the church, we need to be this way. We need to have the Word of God hidden away in our hearts. Because there, there will be times in your Christian life when the Lord calls you to, to minister to somebody, to share the gospel with somebody. And it may be that, that you don't have a Bible with you. Maybe your phone's dead and you can't access your Bible apps. And there'll be a time when, when you need to share the scripture. And if you don't have it hidden away in your heart and in your mind, you're not going to have anything to share. And second... There may be a time in the future when we're no longer allowed to have Bibles. I read an article last year, and I was reminded of it this morning, of this pastor in Hawaii. And, and he went to China to, to do this little Christian leaders conference. right? And he was, he was equipping these leaders in the church. And so he gathers all these Chinese leaders and he says, all right, open your Bibles to 2 Peter. And everybody just kind of stared at him because they didn't have Bibles. And a lady stood up and she quoted the whole of 2 Peter. And the lady and this pastor were talking afterwards and she went on to tell him how she had been in prison for being a Christian. And um, 
And you know, what they would do oftentimes is they would get a, a page or two of text and they would memorize it. And then they would pass it around. And so whenever you got a page, you would memorize it real quick and give it to another prisoner. And she said this, and this is why I remember the article. She says, that's why we memorize it as fast as we can. Because even though they can take the paper away, they can't take what's hidden in your heart. And I thought that that was so profound. You know, they can take our Bibles away. They can delete our Bible study software. They can censor the internet. They can stop supporting our Bible apps. But they can never take away what we have in our hearts. In verse 25, he says, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So Psalm 2 here is basically a psalm dedicated to the sovereignty of God. It talks about how the rulers and leaders and powerful men make their foolish plans to, to move against the Lord. And it's prophetic as well because Peter quotes in the end of verse 26 here, quoting Psalm 2 too, he talks about how the powers of the world will rebel against the Lord and against his anointed one, his Messiah, right? His Christ. That's what the word anointed one means. It means, it means the Christ. And, and Peter and the church here, they, they recognize that this psalm of concerning the sovereignty of God was being fulfilled in their presence. It was being fulfilled in their midst as these men in power tried in vain to stop the plan of God. And he goes on in verse 27. He says, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And so Peter says this. He says, we, we, We've seen Psalm 2.2 unfold in our midst. We've seen men in power try to stop your will. We've seen men in power try to stop the proclamation of the gospel. We saw Herod and Pilate do their best to kill Jesus in conjunction with those religious leaders. But Peter says, Lord, not even death could stop your plan. And then he says in verse 28, he says, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Peter says, look, they thought that they were doing their own bidding. When in reality, they were doing your bidding, Lord. He says, you had determined in time past exactly how this whole thing was going to transpire. And again, he's talking about the sovereignty of God here. Talking about how God is absolutely in control of all things at all times. And that's important for us to understand. That everything from, from the expanding of the universe to the interaction of 
You have protons and neutrons and electrons, right? God is absolutely in control of every detail in the universe. And he says that he has a, a predetermined plan, a predestined plan. Nothing happens that God is not aware of and in control of. And in this instance, right, Herod and Pilate and the Jewish leaders, they were rising up against Jesus and they murdered him. But that was all part of God's divine eternal plan that was set in motion before time even began. John talks about this in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. He talks about the Lamb of God that was slain from before the foundations of the world. And in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, starting around verses 4 through 14, it talks about that. How, how, how we were selected from before the foundations of the earth. God has a predetermined plan for how things are going to unfold. And he's in control of all things at all times. And that's encouraging to me. And it should be encouraging to you that nothing happens in our life that catches the Lord off guard, that he isn't aware of. And, and don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that everything that happens to you, that God caused it to happen to you, but he is aware of it. And he knew that it would happen. And he has a plan to use those things to his glory and to our benefit. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, when he says, For he works all things together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Not everything that happens is good, but God is on the throne. God is in control, and he can use those things for good. He can repurpose those things for good. He can, he can take those, those unfortunate events and, and tragedies in our life and he can reshape them and he can remold things out of our brokenness and make something beautiful out of them. He goes on in verse 29. And he says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Peter says, look, you know what they're saying. You know what your adversaries are doing. You know the threats that they're making against us. Peter says, give us boldness. And I don't want you to miss what Peter is saying here. I want you to see what he just prayed. When he says, give us boldness, in essence, he's asking for more trouble, isn't he? He says, listen. Listen, Lord, we know that trouble is coming. We've been warned. He says, another translation says, help us not to shrink back in the, in the face of of danger and adversity. It reminds me of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39. It says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith 
and preserve their souls. Peter says, Lord, give us the strength to boldly preach Jesus Christ. Despite the danger, despite the threats, despite what's about to happen, give us boldness and courage and help us not to shrink back as we fulfill your will for our lives. As you, he says, as you, Lord, stretch out your hand, as you work among your people, as you heal, as you move, Peter says, use us to glorify your name. And I love Peter and John's attitude here. That they didn't pray for safety. They didn't say, oh Lord, please don't let any harm befall us. Lord, please don't put us in any dangerous situations. No, they said, Lord, we are in a dangerous situation, so give us courage. And give us strength. And give us boldness to do your will no matter what the cost. It reminds me a little bit of Psalm 23. Remember David is talking, and he says in verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Look what David says. Look what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, Lord, lead me around the valley of the shadow of death. Lord, give me a little detour here. He says, Lord, I know that when I go through the valley of the shadow of death, that you're with me and that you're going to protect me and comfort me. And that's what the disciples are saying here. Lord, we, we know that trouble's on the horizon. We recognize that hard times are coming. Give us the, the boldness and the strength and the courage to face it. Let us be faithful, Lord, no matter what the cost. And as I mentioned, Acts chapter 7, they're going to start paying the cost. When they start dying for their faith, when, when this extreme persecution starts. And they didn't pray for safety, they prayed for courage and boldness and strength. And I pray that the Lord would give each one of us that. Not the desire for safety, but the desire for courage. The desire for boldness. The desire to stand up in the face of opposition and let the name of Jesus be known. Pray that the Lord would give us the courage to do great things for his name. Not to, to shrink back. And that word boldness here, it literally means to tell it all. To tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And, and that's my prayer for us. That the Lord would give us the courage to fulfill the calling that he's given each one of us. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. As they prayed together, the room shook and they were, they were filled with the Spirit. Now remember, they already had the Holy Spirit. Every single one of us, as Christians, right, the moment that we are born again, the moment that we're regenerated, the moment that we become Christians, the Holy Spirit indwells us. He comes into us. He takes up a permanent, eternal residence 
within us. And that never changes. But this is something different. Right? This is a, a, a special empowerment. This is the Holy Spirit coming upon them, giving them the strength that they need for a specific circumstance. The Holy Spirit empowered them, and they went out boldly and bravely and courageously, not worrying about themselves, but seeking the kingdom of God. And I read that, and I can't help but think that, that we, the church today, we're desperate for this. We need this in our lives. We need this, this constant refilling of the Holy Spirit. We need this empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And it's not a one-time thing. Last week we were talking about the Holy Spirit, and, and I used that analogy that, you know, if the church were a bus, the Holy Spirit is the fuel that, that powers it, right? The Holy Spirit is the fuel that, that drives it. And here's the thing with that analogy, the Holy Spirit being the fuel. Right? My, my bride, she drives an old Land Cruiser. And it's a V8, it's all-wheel drive, and it gets about 12 miles to the gallon. And so her Land Cruiser, it's never seen a gas station it didn't like. Right? It, it, Costco is its second home. Right? Always, always at the gas station with that thing. It, it constantly needs to be refilled. And, and we are the same way. We constantly need to be being refilled by the Spirit. That, that filling, that, that outpouring, that empowerment of the Spirit, it needs to be an ongoing, continual thing in our lives. And let me say this as we close. I don't, I don't know what the future holds for the church. And we talked about this a little bit last week. We know ultimately what's going to happen, right? We know ultimately we win. But we also know that the world hates Jesus. It's always hated Jesus, and it always will hate Jesus. And because the church is the bride of Christ, and we represent Christ to this world, the world hates us as well. You know, and sometimes it hates us more than other times. But the world is always opposed to the church. And as we serve God, we're going to encounter persecution. Paul talks about that. He says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And that persecution looks different in time to time and place to place. And we might not see severe persecution in our country next month. Right? But we know ultimately what's coming. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Yeah, and we, like no other time in our country's history, we are living in very uncertain times, aren't we? I was reading the news this morning and I read about this guy in Florida who drove his car into a Catholic church and he hopped out and poured gas all over and lit it and drove away. And, and we read that and that's, that's shocking to us. But that's not un that uncommon in other parts of the world. You read in India and African Asia, churches being locked up with the church inside and being set on fire. Right? The church has always suffered persecution. 
and it always will. But here's the thing. You know, the way, the way that our country is moving right now, and, and I, I typically try to refrain from, from talking about political issues and politics and stuff. I don't think that the pulpit's the right place to address those things. But I'll say this. In our country, in our culture, we're seeing this, this relentless march towards socialism. And historically, socialism is not friendly to religion in general and Christianity specifically. And I think as we continue as a culture to move more and more in that direction, we're going to see more and more restrictions put on the church. And I think that's just that's a, a reality that we have to embrace. And the question is, what do we do when that happens? What do we do when real persecution arrives at our doorstep? I think the answer to that depends a lot on what we do today. Are you strengthening yourself in the Lord today? Are you meditating on His Word today? Are you hiding His Word away in your heart today? Are you being filled with the Holy Spirit now? Are you trusting in His sovereign will for your life right now? It says in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. I love that. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. So I want to encourage you guys as the church, be bold. Don't shrink back from your calling, even when it's hard. Proclaim the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to this lost and dying world. I just thought of this at the end of last service, you know, and I was thinking, what a shame it is. Why, why can't we as the church be as passionate about the gospel as we are about arguing about face masks or, or you know, politics or all this other stuff? We get so excited and so passionate and so on fire about things that ultimately don't make any difference. Yet we fail to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, that has to be preeminent in our lives. We are living in uncertain times. We're living in the last days and people are lost and they're dying and they're going to hell without Jesus Christ. And we have the answer. And we're arguing about stupid stuff. And not keeping Jesus the center. Not keeping the gospel the center. Guys, if you're going to make noise on the internet, and if you're going to argue about things, let it be about Jesus. Let it be about the gospel. Let it be about things that have eternal weight. Let it be about things that are going to echo into eternity. If not, just be quiet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is such a 
powerful, convicting word, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to be bold as lions. Help us to be courageous, Lord. Help us not to shrink back in the face of adversity, but just to, through the power and strength of your Holy Spirit, help us to become the men and women that you desire us to be, Lord, and just to fulfill the callings that you've given us. We ask that in your name, Jesus.